Hello, and welcome to the Faculty of Environment podcast, or the... The faux show. Faux show. The faux show. I am Sam Toman. I am a considerable portion of this hosting team. I am Joanne Elizabeth Adair. I am a considerable portion of this team with Sam. Yes. We are... Our endeavor is to bring you exciting stories of adventures in sustainability and environmental work. Yes. And, uh, just and, amazingness. Yeah. And not just in our faculty, but also uh, at the University of Waterloo in general. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Um, Who do we got this week, Sam? Susan Elliott. Oh. Yeah. She, this woman. She's transcendent. She's taken over the world, I think. Yeah. She transcends environment, I think, in this case. Yeah. Um, she used to be the dean of applied health sciences, mm-hmm. and now she's a, a researcher in our geography department, and she researches geography and health. Yeah. And, uh, interesting intersection there. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting intersection. Um, so she has all of this applied health science knowledge. And she looks, one of the big things she's looking at now, and which she'll discuss on this podcast, are allergies. Yeah, let's not give too much away, but she gets into some cool stuff about Canadian food allergies. Yeah, like she is kind of a pioneer in coming up with Canadian food allergy ideas. Yes. And uh, she's going to share that with us. Yes. And uh, yeah. So who do we have to thank? Mad. Yeah. Thank you, Mad. Thank you, Mad. We love you. Yeah. Thanks for making us good. And we're going to thank Tony Ferguson as well. Yeah. And Tony. We're, yeah. And we're thanking these people quickly because this is our last podcast yeah. of the season. We made it. Yeah. So thank you for listening. Yeah. You guys uh, are, you've got some great feedback from you guys. And uh, I think um, thanks to your feedback, we're going to do season two. We're going to do another season. Yeah. And we're going to make it better. Yeah. Um, so keep your, your eyes and ears open for that. Yeah. And um, also, we'd like your feedback on this season. Mm-hmm. So Joanne is going to be sending you a survey uh, at yeah. some point. And Just we, like a five-questioner, you know? Something yeah. short. Super short. Take you like, like 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Yeah. yeah. To but fill we it appreciate out. that. And so that way we can make this podcast better. Yeah, that's right. And more give you more of what you want and what's valuable to the university. Yeah. Yeah, good. And okay. less what we want, which is just cracking jokes with each other. Yeah, which is maybe, <laughs> Unless that's what just you want. maybe not the faculty's yeah. uh, podcast. Maybe that's just like our own yeah. roadshow. Yeah. Anyway, so. Cool. Uh, All right, so Susan Elliott is coming up. Enjoy the last faux show of the year, and thanks so much. Yeah, happy holidays. Bye. Bye. Um, okay, so I guess just starting off, you um, you study environment and health. Yes. And um, how environment and health re- is related in three different areas. So the built environment, the socially constructed environment, and the physical environment. I think I might know what two of those are, but I don't think I can really <laughs> parse what all three are definitely. So sure. you, you think you can help us out? Sure, yeah, I'd love to. So... Um, when I work in the area of environment and health, I use Einstein's definition of the environment. Okay. Einstein said the environment is everything that's not me. <laughs> oh, cool. wow. So we talk about social environments, economic environments, political environments, cultural environments, not just the physical environment. Yeah. So your um, representation of you know, ecology is more thinking about the environment as a physical thing. And even in the physical environment, we can think about that as constructed versus natural, right? So when we look at the built environment, we look at relationships between how we construct cities and how that impacts on our health. We have done work, for example, that shows that how walkable a city is 
um, has a direct one-to-one correlation with body mass index, huh, which we know is a risk factor for so many chronic diseases. Yeah. And so how do we know if a city is walkable or not? We take three uh, data points. So we take population density. Mm. There's lots of people around. You're more likely to walk. We take land use. So if there's mixed land use, you're more likely to walk. So if you live in a residential neighborhood and you're a few blocks away from a Tim Hortons or a shop or something like that, you're more likely to walk. And thirdly, um, because we're geographers, we can use GIS and look at uh, street nodes, so connectivity of streets. So if you look in a neighborhood where no streets connect, what that means is it's a whole bunch of cul-de-sacs and nobody walks anywhere. But if you look at an older neighborhood in particular, like an inner city neighborhood, where there's a grid pattern of streets that cross a lot, people are much more likely to walk. So those three things combined means people are more likely to walk, which means lower body mass index, which means lower rates of cardiovascular disease. It's pretty much a no-brainer. It's it's very, very interesting. Um, The physical environment, of course, uh, is fairly straightforward. A little bit on climate change and health. Um, a lot on water and health, and my focus on water health is primarily in East and West Africa. Mm. Um, the socially constructed environment is an interesting one. I do a lot of research on food allergy, yeah. and people say, hmm, how is that geography? Well, there's incredible... <laughs> uh, in, uh, the environment plays a substantial role in the, ter- the determinants of food allergy, although we, we're not 100% aware of the etiology yet, and there are tremendous spatial variations. Um and there's, there's a real uh, social construction around food allergy with respect to the risk. So if I asked you right now, how many people do you think in Canada have a food allergy, what would you say? A food allergy? Like a proper yes. allergy that's yeah. been diagnosed? Yeah, so is, is, would lactose intolerance be considered? No, a f- that's no. an intolerance, not an allergy. Okay. So a food allergy, like seafood like peanut, allergy? Peanut, peanut yeah. milk, egg. Okay. Okay, and then we got a population of like 33 million? I'd say 5% would be my guess. Food allergy. I'd say like 1%. So you're both actually pretty good. We have 1% of peanut. Overall, it's 7.5%. Hey. Oh, wow. Co-brain. Good stuff. <laughs> But when we went and did a national survey to the Canadian public and said, what percentage of Canadians do you think have a food allergy? They said about 30%. But was that because they were thinking lactose intolerance and other things were included in that? or? I think what when we talk to a lot of people, because we do a lot of follow-up qualitative work as well, it's just everywhere. And people are saying things like, when I went to school, yeah. there was of no course. food allergy. Yeah. We don't understand where it's, it's coming true. from. Yeah. There's this epidemic. They use the word epidemic yeah. to describe yeah. it. Um, and so the risk around food allergy is very socially constructed. Mm. Yeah. So we had no Canadian data on the prevalence of food allergy. We are relying on U.K. and U.S. data. Our team did the first national prevalence survey to show some really interesting things, um, especially from a geographical or spatial perspective. First of all, the overall prevalence is 7.5%, so that, that's the number now. Um, that represents uh, 2.5 million Canadians. But 50% of Canadian households are affected directly or indirectly by food allergy. Why would that be? Maybe you don't have an allergy. Maybe your kid doesn't have an allergy. But your kid goes to a school where there's a peanut ban Mm. or there's a tree nut ban. And you have to be aware of that when you're making that kid's lunch or you're providing snacks for a social event or anything like that. So that's a big chunk of the Canadian population. We're going back into the field starting this fall using the Waterloo Survey Research Centre to another national survey. Because the other big, big question is, is it increasing or not? Yeah. We've been told in the U.S. that peanut allergy has increased um, uh, tenfold in the last 13 years. 
Is this, yeah, is, is that true? Is it true? Yeah. yeah. You know, so, that's, that's a lot. And we don't have a date, we don't have a number for like the 1980s or 1970s or 1960s. No, nobody measured it. Yeah, so nobody, like so that we don't know time. when people say, when I was in school, nobody had this. We don't have the data to say, well, actually, you did. You just didn't do anything about it. We just. Exactly. Like people had attacks in schools. So. Well, that's really interesting, actually, because one of the because I work in Africa, uh, one of the things that interests me is about um, the spatial distribution of food allergy. If you look at a map, we don't see any food allergy in Africa, and very very low rates in Asia. So the big question is, why would that be? Yeah. And why in Asia, where peanuts are a major source of protein in the diet, nobody's allergic to peanuts, whereas everybody here, everybody's allergic to peanuts. So interesting spatial distribution. So when I work in Africa, I start asking people, so do you think there's food allergy? In the end, the take-home message is, yeah, we think there is food allergy. Kids under five just have an anaphylactic reaction, and they die. Oh, no. And there are a lot of kids who die under the age of five. So they're just not documenting it. So, 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 so could we this don't just really be, know. be a reporting issue, though? Because I remember I lived in Ukraine for a while, and uh, some Ukrainian, I was talking to some Ukrainian teenagers, and they said... Everyone in North America has such terrible vision. Everyone we see who comes in from, from America has glasses on. We're like, no one in Ukraine has glasses. And it's like, well, okay, first of all, some people do have glasses. And second of all, maybe you're just not getting the vision care, mm-hmm. you know, needed. So yeah. is that also an aspect, do you think? That's really interesting that you say that because um, I'll say two things. Our, our prevalence data, we specifically focused on what we call vulnerable populations, one of which is new Canadians. Mm. And so we can say with impunity that the prevalence rate of food allergy among new Canadians is lower than the Canadian population. And in fact, it's really interesting because at... uh, For new Canadians who've been here less than 10 years, their prevalence is around 3%. They've been here more than 10 years, it's about 5%, which is still lower than the 7.5%. So why is that? We don't know. I'll give you a really interesting example, and hopefully people at the university will hear this. I supervised a fourth-year thesis student last year who wanted to know about how universities deal with food allergy. She herself has a tree nut allergy. So she interviewed a whole bunch of students who lived in residence, out of residence, all across campus, different years, and um, discovered that 25% of the kids in her sample had an anaphylactic reaction within a month of showing up at university. Oh, no. At this university. Oh, goodness. Because... Um, we don't have a support system. We don't have policies in place. We heard uh, heartbreaking stories about, you know, Friday is um, pizza day in my residence cafeteria. First of all, I have to buy a food plan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I'm only allowed to eat in the residence cafeteria where I live. I can't hop residence cafeterias. Friday afternoon is pizza day. I'm anaphylactic to dairy. What do I do? Yeah, no kidding. So... I think probably if you went online and you started digging deep in the dark corners of the internet and you, and, and you started, uh, there's people I'm sure who are convinced that allergies are, are on the rise without any empirical proof like the kind yes. of stuff you're doing. And they're just convinced, anecdotally. Um, there's probably a lot of con- conspiracy type theories on the other end of that of why that's happening. Are there any ones that you've come across where you're kind of like, yeah, maybe that is it. Maybe these environmental factors, whether like, who knows, like wind turbines or pesticides or, pesticides or anything like that are contributing to it. it is there any kind of... Yeah, so I'm part of a, a National Centers of Excellence called Allergen. Um, and the focus there is on the gene-environment interactions. Okay. So it's not your genes that are causing this, because genes don't change that fast. 
And it's probably not the environment alone. It's probably something in the environment that's triggering something in your genes. And so there's a lot of discussion about what's called the hygiene hypothesis, mm. which intuitively makes good sense. It means that we're too clean, oh. that we right. over-antibiotic <laughs> everything, yeah. right? Yeah. And we immunize our kids against everything, and they don't develop an immune system. And so... Um, the immune system just kind of goes a bit wonky and decides, well, it has to react to something. So it starts to react to good things. It starts to react to things that have proteins in them. So mm. a true food allergy has to have a protein in it. it has to be IgE-mediated, it's called. Mm. And so that's why there's this suspicion that uh, in places like Africa, where people are exposed to lots of bad things before they're five years old and develop, either you're going to die before you're five, or you're yeah. going to grow up and be really strong. Oh, oh. So that's part of that um, hygiene hypothesis. And there is some empirical evidence to, su- to support that. So we see lower rates of food allergies in rural areas, lower rates of food allergies on farm kids, because mm. they're exposed to animals, and lower rates of food allergies in kids who are born vaginally as opposed to by C-section. Right. So maybe it's just that we're too clean. Yeah. Um, can I go back a second to the built and socially constructed environment stuff? Mm-hmm. Because you mentioned walkable cities, and that's something that that I uh, I pay a lot of attention to living in this city. Which so for, you also walk a lot. I do, and I bike a lot. But those long legs. You that's walk. how I. That's how yeah. I fit into the booth today. As I've lost 10, 15 pounds this really? summer. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm yeah. lean. Um, that would be another podcast. <laughs> yeah. Sam's weight, Sam's loss, weight loss journey. Mm-hmm. Um, but the city's going through a makeover, a bit of a makeover right now, I would say. And um, there is definite uh, um, opposition to some of the things that the city's doing to become more dense and to be, become more walkable. And those are the things that you were saying are indicators of a healthier population. Mm-hmm. Where, where does this opposition come from? Like, do you look at the sociological aspects of this at all? Yeah, I mean, the, the opposition comes from um, interfering with people's choices, right? Um, So you're trying to change a culture, which is the hardest thing you can possibly do, and you're interfering with people's freedom of choice. And so, um, you know, it's like uh, 30 years ago, perhaps, maybe 40 years ago, when we first started to tell people that they shouldn't smoke cigarettes anymore, Mm. and there's a huge backlash, right? But nowadays... Everybody understands that you're not supposed to smoke cigarettes. Even the smokers who are still smoking, yeah. no, they shouldn't smoke. Yeah. They get it now. That's like 40, 50 years of a culture shift. It takes a very, very long time. You go to a city like Stockholm, yeah. um, you can't find an overweight person in Stockholm. They just don't exist because everybody lives in small, small, small apartments in the city. They bike or walk yeah. everywhere or use a very good public transit system. And it's, that's just the way life is, right? Yeah. They've always, always, always been that way. Nobody's actually found them overweight and said, okay, now we're going to change you. It's the change part that's the hardest. One of the things I think we could use sort of as a hook, um, and I know Waterloo is involved in this, is um, age-friendly cities. There's a, there's oh, a yeah. big push on for age-friendly cities because that's a, a, a real leveling factor. We are all going to be old someday. And there's a whole big group of us who are aging fast, right? The baby boomers. Mm-hmm. And there are so many things you can do to make cities age-friendly mm-hmm. to get us out there. Um, I don't put myself in that category. But, you know, just simple things like longer times to cross the street, 
So when seniors are out walking, it takes them longer to cross the street than it takes you to cross the street. Yeah. So give them a few extra seconds in the crosswalk. It's really going to make the drivers mad. Yeah. Um, but there are very simple things you can do because you can't reconstruct the cities that you've already yeah. created, yeah. right? But there are simple things you can do. You can make cities safer at night for women to walk or for children to walk and yeah. make neighborhoods safer. Plow sidewalks. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, the age-friendly isn't just for seniors, too. It's for people with toddlers. Yeah, because... like. Yeah. My toddler takes off on the road, or like you know what I mean. Like yeah. she goes off yeah. on the side of the street and crosses over. Like if there's some sort of, you know, pedestrian more friendly thing that would probably help seniors, but also help people with exactly. toddlers or you know everybody yeah. would be. Safe That's like exactly this. right. And in fact, people uh, have found in the literature that age-friendly cities are good for everybody. everybody. Yeah. yeah, it's like everybody. accessibility yeah. ends up exactly. being universally beneficial. Yeah, yeah. yeah. whether even, you actually have a disability versus yeah. whether you're just needing, uh, you know, assistance. Even yeah, like yeah. in web development, accessibility makes for yeah. better reading. Yeah. Everybody's better. Yeah, everybody's better off. Yeah. And there's not going to be enough places to put all the old people. They're going to have to stay in the city. So yeah, yeah, because they can't be in the suburbs. No. Because they won't be able to drive. No. So, you know, you're talking about freedom of choice and how people here are maybe reluctant to give up some of their choice, some of their freedom. That's, that's, I'm sure that's what they would call it. Do, do you find people have that same attitude um, in the countries you've been to in Africa? Where they have things they're used to and they don't want to give them up? Um, I don't think so. I don't think they have that luxury yeah, it's a, so at it's this a luxury. point. Yeah. yeah, I mean, at, uh, when we work there, we're trying to provide basic, basic, basic services like water yeah. and sanitation. That's our primary focus. Um, so we worked in a community in uh, Western Kenya for about 10 years. The focus there was to try and bring water to that community. It sounds funny because they're located on the edge of Lake Victoria, which yeah. is the second largest freshwater body in the world, second only to Lake Superior. Mm-hmm. The um, the problem is it's so heavily contaminated with human and animal waste that they can't use it. They'll just get sick. And there's no other water supply. That's it. And people say, well, why don't they treat their water? Well, there's, there's nothing available to treat it with. Could they boil it? Yeah, but you can boil it like one liter at a time, and you need 20 liters a day per person and yeah. per household. So um, it's a big, big problem. So rather than just go in and construct a water project, what we did was work with the community to build capacity. So we started a water committee, and the committee met on a regular basis and took minutes and had a chair and built their own capacity so that they could navigate the system that exists there to get water provided. So it took about 10 years, but now they have water. They own it. They did it. We just sort of helped them along. No one's ever gone back in any of those situations and said, so how has your life changed now? Are (laughs) things different? And so that's the next stage in our research is we're going to send somebody into the field next uh, year just to work with that community and say, so tell me how your life is different now that you have water. One of the things they always say is, man, women spend so much time fetching water in these countries, right? They walk kilometers and kilometers and bare feet. They carry down their heads. They do it multiple times a day. Um, They take up to three, four hours a day to fetch water. If only they had water, then, um, you know, they could use that three or four hours a day to go to school or start an economic activity and all this kind of But nobody's ever asked the women, what would you do if you had an extra three hours in your day? Um, And there's a classic story about a water project in Nigeria where women were walking long distances to get water. NGO comes in, puts a well right in the middle of the, the village, and the women are all mad. 
and nobody can figure out why. So when you ask the women, why are you mad about the water? They say, well, now we don't have time to talk about our husbands anymore. Because <laughs> that time of walking to get water was a time of fellowship and yeah. friendship with their friends and with their daughters and talking. And, you know, that was a big part of their life. That's when things happened. And uh, that was gone. They, somebody took that away from them. So they were not happy that they didn't yeah. have that time anymore. So you mentioned you mentioned movies, and yeah, we're we're big movie fans. So yeah, okay. um, this is maybe less of a game, but I'm sure you've watched movies before, and whether it's explicit or whether it's through analogy, you've seen uh, something that relates to your work, and you're like, this I could, you know, there's something happening in this movie that I could use as an analogy for my work. Oh my god! Do you have a top three environment and health movies? So the Bhutan Happiness Index yeah. is example <laughs> right there. Um, oh, gosh, that's a hard one. Can I just ask me? a question? Yeah. It's going to be a leveler. Sure. Okay. Have you seen Mad Max Fury Road? No. Oh, <laughs> you need to go see that. I think that would be your that's, number two. That is an okay. unhealthy environment. <laughs> I feel like that is a super awesome movie. It is and really And good it's very though. visceral. So yeah. okay. you're just going to feel the grit in your mouth, and you're like, yeah. oh, my God. And it's a lot about, a lot about water, a lot about... A lot about just yeah, aging equality and, and, and women and child like soldiers. Everything. And, wow. Everything wrapped yeah. into yeah. an amazingly fast-paced, yeah. crazy train. Okay. My, uh, my second one would be Wally. Wally. Oh, oh Wally. the yeah. animated one. Yeah. Okay. Where everybody ends up being so overweight and they're just floating around in chairs. Right. Yeah, that's right. Good one. Um, and there's this amazing, amazing uh, Israeli movie called To Live and Become. Mm. Oh. Um, which is a. Oh, there's another one too, sorry. To Live and Become and The First Grader. Are they both Israeli? No, The First uh, Grader is Kenyan. One. Um, and it's actually about a real, it's a true story about a guy who um, uh, was illiterate. He was in his 80s, on, all on his own. He was illiterate. And he heard on the radio one day that Kenya was going to provide primary education for free, which they do. Yeah. And so he wanted to go to school so he could learn to read and write. And so he shows up to school the next day and they sent him away because he didn't have a uniform. So he went to the market and got some clothes, made himself a uniform, went back the next day and they sent him away because he didn't have any pencils and paper. So he went and got that and came back. And finally they said, okay, fine, you can come. And um, it's about the challenge. It's a true story. He yeah. just passed away about three years ago, and they actually um, had a state funeral for him because uh, he did finally learn how to read and write. And he uh, went and spoke to the United Nations in New York about the importance of literacy for children oh in God. Africa and stuff. Very powerful movie. The subtext is that the reason he wanted to learn to read and write was he had a, a letter from the government and he knew it was important, but he couldn't read oh, it. Wow. And uh, in so, the end, the letter from the government was an apology letter because he had been a Mau Mau warrior um, during the uprising. It sounds like an Kenya. amazing movie. It is. It's absolutely fabulous. Would you, if it could happen tomorrow, would you be in favor of uh, a world without borders? In terms of immigration? In terms of everything. In terms of everything. 100% freedom of movement, freedom <laughs> of jobs. Because I know no. there's, I know activists who are very much in favor of that. I don't think so. I think I, I, I mean, there has to be security as yeah. part of that. So I would say no, but um, I don't think going back to the environment and health piece. I don't think as a world we're ready for environmental refugees, because I think the world that we're creating is going to create a lot of environmental refugees. And you know, it's like climate change. When we do research on climate change, people say, "Oh, it's very far away." 
in time and in space, it's not going to impact me. I don't think we realize in North America that we're going to have to take in a lot of environmental refugees. Oh my God, this is a cliffhanger. I think we have to end the podcast here yeah, because we're out of time. But we'd love to have you on again at some other sure. point if you wanted to, to, to talk about this because this is, I feel like this is the beginning of a whole other conversation. Fun. Yeah, oh, Susan, good. I'm really glad you came. Yeah, it's my pleasure yeah. so much. Yeah, you were a great guest. I yeah, feel like. fantastic <laughs> guest. <laughs> I think what's going to happen is we're going to get like a lot of followers from this podcast because so many people yeah. are interested in food allergies. Yeah. yeah. They love movies. Like, there's just a lot of. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. This was a really great one. So good. Thank you for your time. Thanks. Yeah.